Welcome to Concept to Creation, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs who share their business journey. We'll hear what motivated them to turn their dreams into a business. They'll share stories from the trenches of business, from raising capital, creating products or services, navigating regulations, hiring employees, and managing competition and growth. We'll discover their successes and failures, and they'll provide advice for budding entrepreneurs. Now, here's your host and fellow entrepreneur, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to episode number four of the Concept to Creation podcast. Thanks for joining me today. I have um, two guests coming up in just a moment uh, from a company that I've known for, uh, I think, the day they started 30 years ago, and that would be Kaizen. Uh, welcome, uh, Mike Bixenman, Dr. Mike Bixenman, and Tom Forsythe from Kaizen Corporation. Welcome to Concept to Creation. Thanks for being my, my guest today. Thank you. Our pleasure. Well, we've known each other for many, many, many years, probably more years than we all care to admit. Um, so uh, talk to me about Kaizen, first of all. Let's give our, for the one or two people in our universe that has never heard of Kaizen, um, what, why don't one of you tell me a little bit about what Kaizen does and, and you know where you are in this uh, electronic assembly space? Well, it's, it's uh, sure. And, and, you know, electronic assembly is an interesting business, right? Mike, you, you, we're all in the same marketplace and, and it's, it's, it's the biggest little business in the world, right? And that it's, it's this gargantuan hundreds of billions of dollars, or I guess these days, maybe trillions, we seem to be moving into trillion land um, 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 industry, but yet it's, it's really, it turns out it's a small group of people to kind of make it go right because it's a very specialized world and in our part of that much like yours is the cleaning part right you're the mechanical part of the cleaning part you're, you're the the cleaning machine and we're the cleaning agent or as my neighbors say we're the soap um because you know your neighbors never really know what you do and uh like you you know we've uh we started out uh back in the day with uh when the, uh, the Montreal Protocols were, were just being signed, there were only 40 signatories to it when, when we were getting going. Uh, now it's pretty much the whole world, 100 and some odd countries, almost 200, I think. And that CFC ban was what created the opportunity for us. CFCs were the, uh, the, the ubiquitous cleaner in the electronics world, one of the CFCs. Of course, more commonly, they're refrigerants and that kind of stuff. Uh, and, and, and for our audience's benefit, the CFCs were the chlorinated chlorofluorocarbons that were in the solvents that were used to clean circuit boards back in the day, right? Right. And those chlorofluorocarbons were, were uh, discovered back, I guess, in the 40s, 30s and 40s. And they were kind of, mir they were believed to be miracle materials. You know, they, they, they were not flammable. They were perceived from a physical perspective. They were not hazardous. Uh, I guess if you fell into a pot of it, you could drown. But other than that, they, they really didn't harm people. But then back in the, uh, the late 80s, uh, they, they found data from uh, NASA flights uh, over the South Pole where they discovered the infamous hole in the ozone layer. And they, after work and whatnot, they attributed that to these chlorofluorocarbons. And it was really the first uh, global treaty on the environment uh, that, that did something. Uh, and in fact, in short order, from the late 80s uh, to uh, the mid 90s, CFCs were, were banned and, or on a, on a steep glide slope of being banned. 
And that's what Kaizen was created to do, to say, gee, this electronics world used one of those materials to clean, and everybody seemed to do it, and surely there'd be room for us. Yeah, so you saw... And that, 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 in a nutshell, is, is why the company got started and, and, and the opportunity we pursued. And, and uh, you know, 30 years later, we've got people in a dozen countries and distributors and, I don't know, 50 or 60, and, cu- and customers in 50 or 60 countries and, and uh, lots of frequent flyer miles. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And we're going to we're going to get to the success uh, you are now. Uh, but we're going to start at the beginning because you didn't start off that way. None of us start off that way. Right. But but going back to your point on on what you were referring to as the Montreal Protocol, you said that was the first you know major environmental treaty, uh, which is true. It also here's a you know uh, fun fact. It also is uh, the only uh, one of two treaties that have ever been ratified by every UN nation country. You know, normally not every country signs into something. The Geneva Convention was one, and the Montreal Protocol, which is the treaty you're referring to, was the other. No other uh, treaty has been ratified by every member of the UN, uh, of the United Nations, 211 members, whatever it is it's up to now. Which, now, now combine the two, an environmental treaty that the whole world signed on to, right? I, I, I often say that, we're in such a polarized society today that if, if we decided to uh, propose a treaty that said, let's all agree as a world that the sun goes up in the morning and goes down at night, we wouldn't get every nation to agree to that, right? Someone, there would be a holdout somewhere. Uh, but that was, uh, that was a pretty major piece of legislation. So you took environmental regulation, which most would view as an adverse condition and turned it into a business opportunity or you found a business opportunity within this uh, governmental uh, environmental regulation. And, and that's right. Mike, I mean, maybe you could speak to that. I mean, that was kind of the driver in the early days. Yeah, it was an, it was the event, you know, when we first look at that and, you know, we looked at the market, you know, market opportunity. I can remember, and I was talking to Tom about this. There was a circuit assembly, you know, publication article that was talking about the CFC market for cleaning and how large the market was. And, you know, the people who jumped into this space early on, and you know, we can think about Petrofirm, you know, that um, with the, you know, with their, um, with their semi-aqueous material. Yeah. Yeah, the BioAct products, um, um, but it was a it was an opportunity, and and then you know when in those early days, you know Kyle and I had got together. It was you know Kyle was he, a very very interesting person in his own right. You know his his background, and and um, there was he had introduced me to. Um, some people at Delphi Electronics and you know as we got got an opportunity to see uh, what people were trying to do and what we could do to um, to engineer materials to to do that in a in a safer way it 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 just made a lot of sense and and so it it was an opportunity we were a lot younger back in that that day and time and you know when you when you write a business plan in the early beginning uh, you know, you, you think it looks a whole lot easier than what it really is in the end. But but uh, from from that point of view, it, 
it it was something that we pursued and and we stayed focused during during that period of time that i think that was one of our key attributes of being successful um, we didn't veer off that plane of what we were trying to accomplish and so you know from that you know you always run into certain roadblocks along the way they're they're always going to be there and how do you adjust and one of the the key key things that we did from the beginning that i think was turned out to be really really successful is is that every time we'd hit a benchmark we'd try to bring on people who could help us achieve the ultimate goal just like tom you know, Tom was one of the early guys into this business, you know, and he brought his background and his experience. And and I think, you know, surrounding ourselves with people along the way that could help us accomplish the overall objective was a piece of our success. Yeah, interesting. You, you talked earlier about you mentioned Kyle. I assume you're talking about Kyle Doyle, who's your co-founder. Right. So uh, Mike Bixenman and Kyle Doyle uh, started Kaizen. Tom came on in the in the early days. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kyle is very happy to be the man behind the curtain, right? And the mad oh, scientist. Absolutely. And, and there was there was a phase where where uh, people thought I made Kyle up that he didn't exist. Right, exactly. Uh, it's and, like and, it's and like the so, so-called sales manager at the car dealership. I have to check with the sales right. manager. There is no sales manager. Right. They just go back and drink or, coffee and, and put you in a sweat box. Well, or, or do we, and then, then the joke evolved into the Charlie's Angels guy, right? And, right. Uh, <laughs> the guy on the phone, but, yeah. Uh, who did exist, right? And, and, but, but Kyle's a, is a giant driving force in the company. I mean, he's, he's our CEO, and, and uh, he's always been the visionary, and he and Mike together have worked on inventing the technology, um, which has, let's face it, we're at this 30 years, you know, we're, we're through, uh, you know, I don't even know how many generations of products at this point, double digits, uh, to be sure. We don't, it's such a big number that you don't talk about it anymore. Right. Right. Um, because you're, you know, we, we of course are cleaning, as you know, Mike is, 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 a, is an odd critter in that it's a reactive process. You know, the, the parts that people make think of the electronic devices and how they've changed over the last 30 years that we've been all doing this. Oh yeah. Well, they don't look anything like they used to. That's the no. only thing that looks the same is the green FR4. Right. Um, the laminate stays the same. Everything on it is is much more everything's complex. Different. Yeah, absolutely. Everything's different. Well, and, and that goes for the parts, the markings, the components, the, and, the, and the, the connecting, you know, the solder pastes and, the, sure. and everything else. Well, you know, we in the cleaning world have to react to that. We have to evolve and not screw up something new that got invented that's great and and likewise do a great job of removing some new contaminant that's marvelous uh, that occasionally is pretty challenging to clean when they first come out of the blocks. So we we, always describe ourselves as this very react, while we try to look forward, we are cleaning is fundamentally a reactive technology. Sure. And and so it it really requires us to be close to our customers because otherwise they'll move and we won't know where they went. That's right. And, and that would be bad, right? So we, we try to stay very close to our customers. And that's another thing that you know Mike mentioned that in the, in those early days as we as we would win business, we always try to stay engaged with those customers, kind of the antithesis of the used car guy who hopes to never see that client again. You know, we want to invite that client to, to our children's wedding and vice versa. 
you know, we want to have that relationship. So when they start inventing something really breakthrough, which our clients do all the time, you know, we'll actually get wind of it because, you know, sometimes it takes more than a day to dream up a new technology. In fact, almost always it takes more than a day. Yeah, I quote you regularly. You're uh, one of the my favorite things you've said um, is, that I can repeat <laughs> is is um, that you have to earn the business again, you know, like every time the pail is empty. Right. So, you know, every five gallons or so, you got to earn the business again, unlike capital equipment where, you know, it's expected to last seven or 10 years or, or, or longer. And you don't just buy another one, you know, after after 30 days. So it it's uh, it that definitely landed on me. Let's talk about uh, Mike. Let's talk about some of the early days. So when you started Kaizen, when you and Kyle started Kaizen um, shortly before Tom joined, there, there was both an opportunity with the government regulation, with the Montreal Protocol, the solvents that were traditionally used to clean circuit assemblies were going away. That opened the door to an alternative, environmentally responsible uh, technology, which Kaizen came up with. But also, you know, the Lord giveth and taketh away. You know, the taketh away part is uh, no clean flux came along, right? All at the same time. The, the solvents were going away, and then no clean flux came on the scene and said, oh, wait a minute, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. You don't have to clean. Here's this magic formula. So at the same time, there was a new opportunity, and a competitor at the time, um, which was no clean flux. So there was, uh, there was pros and cons in the, in the time Kaizen had started. So... Jumping into the, the fray, into this new business opportunity, and it was definitely new. There was a couple of companies that uh, made saponifiers, made water-based materials, uh, but no one did it really well. They were, you know, I remember this stuff. I, I, can't, I, I won't say what we called it, pink stuff. Let's call it pink stuff that was um, popular at the time. Um, sold out of the Pacific Northwest, and and that was, and then there was the the solder companies all had their version of of a saponifier, but they weren't very good at the time. So Kaizen had definitely an opportunity to create something that that was novel, um, that actually worked, um, but it also had uh, this this phenomenon called no clean flux, where where at least seventy percent of the of the industry stopped cleaning the military folks the space folks the the medical folks kept cleaning that was our market back then your market back then but for the most part all the commercial folks if they could they they got rid of their vapor degreasers and their old inline cleaners and they never went back at least for a while so in that environment uh, were you aware of that would you were you aware that uh, there was a movement to not clean at all at the time you started kaizen and if you were aware of that, what made you think you could, you know, either turn that tide or still thrive with a smaller market base? Well, I, I would look at it this way. You know, when we first looked at the industry that we were looking to to be a part of, the electronics industry, you know, we, we were thinking, man, this is an industry that is going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to grow. It's going to continue to innovate. So there, unlike any marketplace, there's always going to be competitive forces, but there's always going to be a place for um, 
for, for specialized businesses like what Kaizen was. Now, it is true, the, the company that really won the day uh, at, at, from the CFC environment was the no clean companies. But at the same time, as we looked at, you know, the, the high end companies, the military and defense contractors and, and people where failure was not an option, even though no clean material sets were were viable, they were still going to clean. That became a market niche that um, that was truly there. The one thing that made it unique, though, is is that none of those companies were going to adopt any material set without going through a rigorous test protocol. And also at that period of time, there was this you know, the, the standards groups were involved with, as well as the military people, and what, what we recall as the phase two testing. Um, and, and part of that, if you, if you were going to be a part of this industry, you had to, uh, you had to, to pass that test. That was one of the, the, the early gates that, that we were faced with. But, you know, as, is in, and I can recall back in the early days, we, the first two years, we really didn't have a lot of revenue. I mean, we were we were in in the midst of looking to to try to get on, you know, to be a viable company, a, a company that people had confidence that was going to be around, that, that was not going to be a fly by night organization, and, and so. We, uh, again, even though we knew water soluble was a viable option, no clean was a viable option, you know, people who, who were in that classification that were going to clean, um, we, you know, we stepped off the, uh, you know, the, um, and, and built, you know, decided to start this business and we were going to try to take it to, to where it led us. So, so from that perspective, it, it actually, wasn't as big of a market opportunity, but it was a viable market opportunity. And and as you know, Mike, is is when no clean materials, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that people stop cleaning. I mean, if you're going to run no clean, it's a mindset. You know, everything's got to come in clean. So so it there was still very much a market there. And and the real key was. How do we build ourselves around the market opportunity and become a viable player, a viable entity in this space? We started at the same time as Kaizen did. We're about one year behind you. We'll have our 30th anniversary next year. So we had the same two, you know, two you know, pros and cons, this kind of bipolar uh, entrance into business. One is great opportunity. The solvents are going away. And the other, uh, so a water-based process from an equipment standpoint certainly had a had a had an opening. But at the same time, most of the industry was deciding not to clean at all. So, but because we started at zero and you started at zero, there was really no place to go but up. Even, even if only 20% of the business was left, that's 100% opportunity, right? So it's not like you experienced, it's not like you were selling trichloroethane or freon TMS before, and all of a sudden you saw your business revenue drop. You started from zero. You mentioned earlier that uh, in the early days, of course, you know, the struggle was revenue. Of course, you know, getting your first sale, you know, you, it's 100% growth. The, the second sale is, you know, diminishing returns after that. What was life like in the early days of Kaizen? So you and Kyle are sitting in a, a bar or a back room or some 
strategic place, figuring out that there's an opportunity and you want to capitalize on that opportunity. Um, you know, you need money, you need capital to capitalize on opportunity uh, and you need a business plan. So where'd the money come from? Where'd the business plan come from? Uh, and, or, and what was the process of obtaining those two things, the, the, the capital to start the business and, and the business plan itself? Well, before we ever went into business, we, we, we wrote the business plan and um, we basically used the business plan to seek out investment capital. And we had a, a small investor that did, in, did invest in the organization, but one of the key learnings that um, with, with investors that, that I took away, and Tom, you can, you can comment on this as well, but uh, in, in, you know, when, when somebody invests in a business, they watch it pretty close and you know, they wanna see, they wanna see progress relatively quickly you know, if they're going to continue their investment. And one of the things that we learned about this little niche that we were going into is, is that it, you had to get on that specification list before people were going to actually buy from you. you it, 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 there was a lot of work that had to go forth before you were going to, to start, you know, generating revenues that were going to get you to a point where you could, uh, you, you, you could fund, on that that enterprise yourself. So so, you know, it, in in those early days, we um, we started out and we didn't hit those targets as fast as our investor wanted us to. And and it all all of a sudden, it, you know, there there wasn't a, a lot of cash, you know, uh, available. So and, and Tom was in those early days where where we all sucked it up and we said, look, you know. We, we started living off our credit cards. We believed in ourselves and, yep. you know, we're, we're going to fund it. You are going to fund it moving forward. And, and in some respects, um, those were, those were hard days, but those were days that we learned a lot, but they actually turned out to be good days as well, you know, because it, it kept us tightly focused on, on where it was that we were trying to go. You know, and that was and that was one of the big learnings too. that focus. Right. And to to kind of put it in context with our investor, who was a great guy and and he took a he took a flyer on an idea. Uh, But fundamentally, investors have portfolios. You know, many of us have been to business school. We understand portfolio management, Um, whereas entrepreneurs, at least the ones that succeed, tend to be more known for a hyper focus, particularly in those early days when you're trying to get some traction. And when when he decided that his portfolio needed less Kaizen and more of something else, you know that was a that was one of those moments where again we we kind of said, all right, let's let's make it so. And that we we, were, we, we lovingly refer to that as the bootstrap phase, um, because that was when all we had were boots. You know, we didn't have anything. We didn't have any money. Right. <laughs> so, um, but it, it reminds it, me it of the Beatles. It reminds me of the Beatles yeah. song uh, where the lyrics were, you know, you never give me your money. You only show me your funny paper. You know, they, they, even they, the Beatles were, they got everything they needed, but they didn't have any money, you know, because the record exactly. labels and, had and it. We were, so. you know, so, and we, and then we, then we were fortunate because the, that, that early focus work that Mike and Kyle did on the phase two testing was indeed the correct read. 
Okay, that was not simply an academic exercise that some guy in some standard group dreamed up to, to torture people. It was in fact something that was delivered value and was perceived to have value. And once once we had that 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 in our pocket, not to mention a patent, our patents that came out. In those days, all the all the semi-aqueous things were patented. Um, well, lo and behold that work started turning into business and, and it was, it was modest in the beginning. And, and, you know, we were excited about orders that we don't notice today. Um, but, uh, but I still remember them vividly. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, and then of course you, you go into the next phase, right. Is, is that, you know, in the beginning you need money to survive, but then you start to survive and you need money because working capital will kill you quicker than no customers. Um, you know, we went through a pretty strong growth spurt and, and that created its own capital challenges. Let's talk about that. Uh, just to recap, Kaizen started, investor money, investor, of course, always all investors get disenchanted, particularly if they're kind of novice investors because they think they're going to, you know, they think they're going to put $1 into a startup and get a million dollars, you know, in two weeks after that, when they realize that that's not the way it works. Investor says, nah, I'm, I'm not so enchanted anymore. You guys go through the bootstrap stage. You're living off credit cards and promises and things like that, which is a pretty typical uh, journey. Uh, and then you start to grow. My recollection in our growth phase was growth is super expensive. Growth is a seduction, in my opinion. Growth is, is a seduction that many companies really can't afford because they think the key, the key to survival is growth, which is, there is a, certainly an element of truth to that. Um, but growth for growth's sake, you know, if you just say, I just need more, then I, could, I, can, I can incentivize my salespeople to bring in more sales. None of them will be profitable, but they can certainly bring in more sales. But, the, you know, the key is managed growth. So tell me how you manage growth in the real estate world, and I've said this on the show before, you know, the three most important words in real estate is location, location, location. And I think the three most important words in, in a business startup is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, right? And sometimes cash flow comes at the expense of profit. You can bring in money to cover payroll, but it's, it's not profitable. So how did you balance those kind of polar opposite requirements of growth and cash flow? How did you walk that tightrope? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, because our business is in, in, on the, the material side, you know, we, we sort of bang on the rock for a long time. And then the customer says, okay, I'm through my testing. I'm through my protocol. I've done every test under the sun. I'm confident it's going to win. Off we go, ready to start. You know, so the phone rings with someone that you've been working with for months and months, in some cases years, uh, and it's time to go. So the whole notion of managing growth is, is a little bit of an illusion uh, because you've got this pipeline full of things and then in, in their own due course, they turn into actual business and revenue. Um, so the real challenge in that case, back to this, are the reactive nature of cleaning. Well, there's also the reactive nature of dealing with that. Well, now, you know, you've, you know we've got to worry about inventory. You've got to worry about delivery times. Um, credit from your suppliers except you're a startup so there isn't any um you know that that sort of stuff and and mike you you remember those days it was it was bedlam and then we were fortunate in the early days of the company we we, we had a big win at motorola who back then was a big deal 
and of course the business was on the other side of the world. And and so, you know, back, I, I can still remember this day now, oh God, uh, 25 years ago, getting on a plane to meet distributors that I'd signed up on a fax machine at an airport to go turn on customers in, in various points in, in, in East Asia. You know, all of those were dilemmas. And fortunately, none of them killed us, but half of them probably could have. I mean, uh, you know, Mike, Mike, what was your take on those days? I mean, it was, you know, you were always uh, very close to the customers. Yeah, you know, it. Uh, what, what, what I think, a couple of things that, that kind of defined us when we started to win business, we started to pick up uh, a, a number of customers, meaningful customers in a, in a, in a relatively, you know, short period of time. And, and so things were, 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 were going better. And one of the, one of the key cultural pieces of Kaizen is, is that we, we were a customer centric organization. I mean, back what, you know, Tom had mentioned it, but every customer that we, we were fortunate to, to win or to work with, we did everything we could to, to try to make them successful. We were looking out for their best interest because we felt that if, if we could succeed with them, that would help us succeed. That was one of, one of the key um, cultural pieces that is still with the organization today. So, so I thought, I think that's a, that was a really good thing. But the other thing that I thought was, was, was interesting was um, I, you know, from my standpoint, I enjoyed working with those customers. But when you look at the business side of it and we bring Kyle back in, we bring Tom back in, you know, one of the things that we did is we as we would win specific customers, we would look at going back to that cash flow piece and, and looking and saying, OK, where are we today and where can we continue to invest for tomorrow? And that was one of the strategic decisions that that was made even early on, and and it continued throughout our organization. That is, we met a gate. We said, "How do we meet the next gate?" And and part of that is 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 you need you need good people with different skill sets to to get that done. And so, not only did we invest in in, in infrastructures in different parts of the world, but but one of our key successes has been investing in people. Yeah, I think at the early days of business, the people is you, right? And, right. and eventually you start filling in those, those spots because otherwise you're gonna end up being like a restaurant with two tables. You, you're, you're, the, you're the chef, you're the bus boy, you're the waiter, you're the bartender, you're everything. And then at some point you just reach that, that max out point. Uh, besides cash flow, which is always a, a, a business challenge, uh, not just in the beginning, but you know, through various stages of the business. What other challenges did Kaizen have to overcome, particularly in the early days and, and throughout its journey for that matter? What, what kind of challenge roadblocks uh, were, were thrown in front of you and how did you get around those? Well, as, as Mike said earlier, you know, we, had, we had the no clean thing. You know, no clean was a concept uh, when the company was just getting going, it became a reality just as we were taking off. When we were really starting to grow, that was when no clean 
began to, to be more than an idea. It began to be an adopted technology. Uh, and that really, really did put the brakes on things for a while. It was, but, you know, we've also, you know, this, this was an attractive market to lots of other companies. Over the years, there have been many competitors uh, that also have, you know, on any given day, somebody's mousetrap is better than somebody else's. Uh, and then again, you've got the advances out in the marketplace. I, I think our biggest challenge is, uh, from a, a strategic perspective, have mostly been staying in tune with the evolution of our customers. Uh, and that's every bit as challenging today as it was 25 or 30 years ago. In the beginning, frankly, remember, surface mount was new. Surface mount was a thing people talked about. Um, the SMTA was invented because surface mount was new and it was a way for people to, to gather to, to talk about that new technology. Well, you know, the, the, the move from, from through hole to surface mount was something, but what's going on today is, from a cleaning perspective, in many ways, far more challenging. And so that, that steady stream of challenges, and that's where Mike's been critically important, uh, and that he early on moved into a role of the chief technology officer here where his mission was to stay tuned in to those advances because as we grew and we were able to attract talent and, and we were also blessed that, that our environment was such that our talent tended to hang around. We tend to have a lot of very long-term employees, um, but they needed to be able to put it in perspective, right? What, what is that challenge? How can I help this customer believe that, that we're the right answer? Well, that's where, applications labs became a big deal and we put the first one of those in place and we, and we have developed those around the world and they're tremendous tools to uh, to help customers help themselves solve those new problems so so that the the constant change of technology both from the contamination perspective you know how many solder companies are there mike i mean can anybody even come up with a number there's a lot of them there, there's a lot, but one of the things that, that, that was a fortunate thing for us back in the early days, and it was a challenge, is, is that back again, we were thinking about PetroFirm, you know, they were on the, they, they were in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, they were, they were considered, you know, that semi-aqueous technology. And Tom, you remember when we, we first developed the solvent sprayable yep. alcohol material, SSA, you know, and what we were trying that. to do is trying to take that semi-aqueous approach and, and, and make it alive in an aqueous process. And you know, today, what we did there really become, has become the basis for how aqueous processes are, are run today. And, and so one of the big challenges was, is, is that, and was, you know, it, from my standpoint is how can we, you know, how can we make it better? How can we do something better? I forget, you know, Tom, you remember this when we, you know, SSA was a big part of our business and we said, hey, I think we can do this better. Or, you know, you remember, Tom, when we, we, we decided to make a strategic, you know, advancement from SSA to the next generation. And we bet, we bet our whole, our, our right. whole organization. <laughs> we've done that a couple of times where, where we've, we've, you know, and it's funny, the SSA thing is, is worth another comment. We, we were what, now in hindsight, we're really smart guys, so we know what happened all those years ago. In the moment, you know, it's not always as obvious what's happening. That That's sure. the other part of the whole entrepreneur game is, 
as you wake up one day and something that's been going on for six months is clear to you now that you didn't understand yesterday, right? Yeah, well, perspective. I could, I could still remember the company wasn't five or six years old. I was we hired some new salesperson and I was training them on stuff, talking about all the competitors, I was writing prices they're charged and applied costs. And I had this moment that I realized everybody's applied cost was 10 to 15% less than mine. Everybody's. And what I realized that meant we were actually in charge, which made absolutely no sense, right? We're this little startup. We couldn't possibly be, be, be in charge, but our SSA approach and the, and the series of, of, of advances beyond that had literally uh, disrupted the marketplace. You know, the, the, those old semi-aqueous technologies that, you know, no longer, you know, that was the day they started to fade. Um, and it was remarkable. And, and those people tend to be solvent folks, and, and they never mostly made the jump into the aqueous zone. That just, for whatever reason, doesn't happen a lot. But, but Mike's right. I mean, several times over the years, we've said, well, you know, we've got a great technology, but we think it's a little soft. Okay, we'll spend a year or two developing the next technology, and then off we go. That's the new horse. And if it, you know, or, or I guess we live in the South, right? So it's if that new dog doesn't hunt too much trouble sort of thing, to, to pick a Southern metaphor. But, I mean, and Mike, Mike was in the middle of that because he was in the middle of the inventing. He was in the middle of deciding, well, gee, is this good enough? Is it really the right play? But, but those were absolutely on the brink sort of moments. You know, uh, uh, you know. Uh, granted, we're no Apple or anything like that. But I remember the stories when, when, when uh, Steve Jobs and a bunch of people went back to some other garage and invented the Mac. You know, and that was essentially disrupting their own company. That's right. Yes, on, on a far grander scale than we here at Kaizen. But, but it was kind of the same thing. Yeah, it's kind of scary, I guess, when you, you know, back in the SSA days, when you have a product, it's, it's. It's working for you. You're making money on it. You're you're gaining a reputation for it, and then you have to, you know, make come up with a decision to sacrifice that for something you think is better, but it hasn't been proven yet. And then all the energy that you've spent building the reputation and confidence in one product, then you have to kind of go to the customer and go, wait a minute, there's something better, and 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 not knock the old technology. It's a fine balance, right, between selling a customer up on something it's like yeah and i know it, what we said yeah oh well exactly i mean you mentioned how many you know the other thing that's two, interesting about doing that is is that whenever you go to your customer and say hey i think we've got a better approach you open the door for your competition to get into that race sure and so you know it's uh but it turned out to be the right thing to do i mean we 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 always looked and said okay let's Let's get back to what Tom had said. Let's stay close to the market. Let's understand where the challenges are and let's try to continuously improve. That was another key key motto of, of Kaizen Corporation. It was it was all built on continuous improvement. That's where the name came from. So, you know, it 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 just Kaizen, got to a right? Point. The the Japanese right. term yeah. Kaizen, right. That's exactly right. And and so we we were always willing to take that risk. Talk about, you talk about competition when you come up with something new, you know, you, you want to be ready to you know, leap out of the gate because the competition will, if it's good, the competition should jump on it. Um, so you, 
you know, there's a benefit to being first and, and being the leader in it. Tell me how competition works in business, particularly at Kaizen or any business for that matter. But since we're talking Kaizen, uh, what's your view on competition? Is competition a necessary evil? Is there a benefit to having competition? Is there a such thing as healthy competition, unhealthy competition? How have your views changed, if they have, from the early days of competition to maybe now that you and most of your competition are more mature companies now, what, what's the, um, what's the attitude of, of competitors now, you know, new competitors or old competitors? Uh, do they have a place in the market? Should they be there? Should they not be there? Are they benefiting your company? Are they hurting your company? Just in general, I, we don't need to get specific with any, any particular well, yeah, company. No. Well, I guess, I guess, you know, from a, from a business school perspective, it, 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 and I'm stealing one of Mike's favorite phrases here, if, you know, if you don't have a competitor, you don't actually have a business. Uh, right. You know, that's, that's in Webster someplace that actually says that, and it's true. So, you know, but as through the life cycle of the company, you know, back in the early days, you know, we were, we were like Gulliver's Travels and, 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 and we were the Lilliputians, you know, we were like these, this little mouse that was running around among what we perceived to be giants. And then some of them were giants actually. Uh, of course we were nimble, but of course, you know, if they stepped on us, that nimbleness wasn't going to hurt us, help us very much. But as, as time goes on, you know, what, what, because our market is so dynamic and so big, you know, they would think of the land of electronic assembly. I mean, how many companies do that? It's, it's thousands of companies, you know, innovations are, are, uh, nearly constant where a, you know a better mousetrap a smaller mousetrap nowadays a, a mousetrap that you can do from your phone a mousetrap that you can do with wiggling your nose instead of touching your phone um and nobody's view on that is right right so what competitors i what we believe competition helps all of us because everyone tries to do an innovation and, and when you really crack the nut like what we did with ssa the advantage the second guy has is he doesn't he doesn't have to worry whether you can do it differently. He just has to worry how to do it better differently. And, and that's it. You know, it's like once, once the right runs figured out how to get off the ground, everybody knew you could do it. Now they just had to figure out, well, how can I do it? Cause what they were doing was kind of strange. Um, and so that, that, and Mike's done a lot of studies on this stuff over the years, but, but competition, I think helps the marketplace helps each of the competitors. Because if, if, if we're, if we're not moving forward, we're, we're not going to succeed. I mean, Mike, you've, you've given us a lot of thought over the years. Well, competition really drives innovation, you know, because let's face it, we're always trying to, or competition, the market competition is always trying to do it better. And if, if you stay close to your market and understand what it is, it, it, it helps you to to evolve. You know, one of the things that a lot of companies and one of you, you there's a reason why a lot of companies fail over time is uh, one of the reasons I think is, is that, you know, you put a lot of energy to start a business. And then once you get there, you, you know, and you maintain that business, you now start to protect that that real estate that you that you put into play. But if you're not willing to disrupt it, if you're not willing to step out and say, what's the next generation or what can we do better along those ways, sooner or later, you, you'll mature and you will die. And, and so one of the things that I think competition does is that it, 
you know, companies are trying to, to do it better. And so as they try to do it better, what can we do better? You know, it, it, it helps us to, 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 to look outside of ourselves and, and say, how do we continuously evolve as an organization and how can we become of greater value to the company we uh, companies we get to serve? And so from that standpoint, I, I think composite, you know, without competition, you don't have a market. So, so I don't look at competition as being evil at all. You know, it's, it's just a part of, of, you know, the marketplace that we all chose to be a part of. And, and so how do we as an organization not fixate on what they're doing, but be fixated on what we can do to, to grow our organization? Yeah, I totally agree. I remember and in our one, early one other days. point on that competition yeah. thing, if I might, sure. is that, you know, we've, we've wound up being modest-sized global enterprises. And we have, in some cases, we have different competitors in different parts of the world uh, that, that do one slice, kind of like, you know, the hospital's competing with the surgical guy down the street. Right. One little piece of their business, you know. And so part of that listening to the marketplace and engaging, understanding your competition, not fixating on them, is recognizing that, you know, culturally, from a diversity perspective, you know, different people from different parts of the world view things differently. And a lot of times that their perspective is better than yours. So you can sometimes learn things about corners of the market uh, by what your competitors are doing, because on any particular day in some particular location, they may be, you know, a little more savvy than you are. But once you see it going on back to that second guy, sometimes has an advantage because, oh, well, that works. It's, it's you know, the first mover does have an advantage, but sometimes the second guy leapfrogs. Um, right. When you look at Apple, Apple, you know, they're, they get a lot of credit for being innovators, but they were not the first at very many things. If you think about it, you know, their, their cell phones came out, you know, after BlackBerry established that we can turn smartphones and we can turn phones into smartphones and the mouse came from Xerox park, you know, and, and the whole uh, graphic user interface, the whole GUI thing came from a, a different type of machine. I mean, they, they were um, exploiters and I don't mean that in a negative way. They took technology, which was underutilized and exploited it. And I think there is a healthy competition. It's, it's, you know, it's like a ship going down a, a body of water that's never been traveled before. You know, all these captains going, well, you first, <laughs> we'll follow you. You know, and if you hit a reef, w thank you, we'll go around it, right? So I guess you do need competition for that. I, I, I share your, your, um, your opinion on, on competition. I think it is healthy, even though in the moment it could be divisive. I think in the, in the long run, in the big picture, it's definitely healthy. So you guys are arguably in a business that you won't, agree with this, but I think you can agree that many other people consider your product a commodity, right? It's as your, as your friends say, your social friends, Tom say it's soap, right? So I know it's not a commodity. You know, it's not a commodity, but many buyers view it as a commodity. Their job is to find the right soap at the right price and two cents a gallon might make a difference. So how do you take a, a product that you've put your blood, sweat and tears in and all this research and, and you know, it's definitely not a soap, uh, but how do, you, how do you stand out from the commodity crowd? 
how do you uh, sell the value of a product that many would consider a commodity? That I think that's a challenge. Well, you know, Mike. Mike is the is the shining example of that could probably speak to it best because it it only it only starts with the product. So, Mike, it's all about the product, right? It's all about the process. You know, when we think about what we do, um, yeah, the clean material is only one piece of it. It, it, If if it's not all integrated together and working cohesively together, then it doesn't work. And so I think part of part of the value equation is, is that understanding all phases of that process and how you could, how we as an organization can help our customers be able to do that, whether they're running it in, you know, an aqueous technology machine or somebody else's machine, how do you control the material sets going in, the inputs in and out, and how, how do we, how do we help the customer optimize their process? And so I think part of it is, is that, yeah, you could say soap is a commodity, but I don't look at us as being a soap supplier. I, I look at us as being, you know, a company that's helping customers achieve a specific objective that they need to achieve to drive reliability. And so if we, if we stay along those, those lanes and we help our customers get there, they don't, they don't necessarily drive it back as we're a soap supplier and, you know, the, it's the engineers that really drive our business at the, in the end. So I think that's how you go away from being a commodity in our business. And, and part of that, too, is the I've, I've often said over the years that we're consultants that get paid by the barrel. And, um, and that, you know, the, the cleaning, cleaning is right at that end of the, pro, the manufacturing process, the, the most delicate point, right, where the bill of materials is all in play, but we're not quite ready to get to the loading dock and packaging. Um, and so, so cleaning is, is in some ways a high-risk process, right, because it's, it's right there. And it's where every variation, Mike, in many of your talks, you talk about how, you know, we may have stopped cleaning flux, but what about all that other stuff? Well, there are so many inputs that go into making an assembly. There's so many different processes and, and, and machines and handling and all this other stuff. They all come together. They go through the cleaning machine. And, and at the other end, life is you know purity and grace is, is, is what comes out the end, right? Well, sometimes it doesn't work out that way, right? It worked out that way yesterday. But for some reason today, not so much. Well, in, in this era of, of limited staffing and, and efficiency, which means less people, uh, the bandwidth to resolve those dilemmas is, is often very constrained at, at many of our customers. And so we find ourselves that consultant role where we help them be troubleshooters and help them resolve that dilemma. Well, why, why was it good yesterday, but not today? gee, my cleaning process, nothing seems to have changed, yet I'm getting a different outcome. Well, that means something before the cleaning process changed. Okay. Right. And, 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 and a lot of customers, are they're just very busy. They're, they're stretched staff-wise. They don't have the resources to delve into those things. And a key part of how we differentiate back to that stay close to the customer, it's not just stay close to their knowledge and what the, where they're going and what they're doing. We talked about that for market changes. But it stay close to them physically, 
That's why the pandemic's been rough on us. We, we're very much out there with the customer. What's going on? How are you doing? And looking around because, you know, we've been wandering these plants. Our team has been in these plants for, for years. And if things seem a little wacky, you know, we can pick up on that sometimes and we can try to be helpful. And that's a key value adder for us, that sharing of our expertise to, to help them succeed. It's all about we only succeed if our customers succeed. And that obviously that the first part of that is the product comes out and it's clean. That's great. But it's fundamentally, how do they have a, a, a robust, resilient process that yeah. can accommodate those inevitable little bumps and shakes that, you know, all manufacturing processes vary, you know, just like a ship, right? Ships, you, you were talking about the ship going, you know, and hitting the reef or whatever. Well, when the ship's going down, you know, it's, it's wiggling a little bit back and forth, right? Well, if, if everything goes on one side, it's when it falls over. All right. right. And, and a manufacturing process is quite similar. You know, all those variations tend to work themselves out, but if, if they all lean the wrong way at the wrong time, that's when there's a problem. And, and we try to be deeply involved to help people address those issues or prevent them when, when we can. And, and that's a key part of us because, as you know, there are no more purchasing agents. There are commodity buyers. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. It's and, a race to the bottom. I personally with, find with these that people. offensive. <laughs> I do, too. I do, too. It, 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 it is a race to the bottom. It, people yeah. are not buying value. They're buying commodities. And, that's, and their job is they're rewarded on the savings they could get. And yes. what most buyers, well, I don't know if they don't realize it or if they don't care to realize it. You know, if, you're, if, if a small business, particularly a startup, is working on a 10% you know, after-tax profit, which would be enviable for any small startup business, right? To sure. be in the black at all. Um, and, and someone wants a, you know, 1% discount on, or 5% discount on the price. That's your profit. That's all of it. You know, it, it, right. people don't realize that, you know, take, take $100 off the, off the retail price and that's 80% of your profit, you know, in terms of after tax. So, you know, it's important that businesses stay in business to support those customers that bought those cheap products, right? So it, it, there are diminishing returns when it comes to um, driving your supplier's costs down. It, it, you're not doing yourself any favor in the long run. You might be making, hitting your bonus, but you're not doing your company any favor in the long run because you're just stripping away your supplier's ability to service you in the future. But that's a, you know, that's a topic a for another day. And I, I've got an example that aligns with that. I had a neighbor who worked at a, 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 uh, an automotive company who shall remain nameless, okay? Uh, and their their stated goals was we're trying to reduce our, our you know, our input costs by 10% a year. And he told me a story once that they were in the office talking amongst themselves. And somebody said, is this the year they pay us 10% to sell to us? Because it's been 10 years and we're driving the costs out. You know, right. you know, back to your race to the bottom thing is is that you know it's it, fundamentally for suppliers to add value they they have to be able to make payroll and and have some reward that makes it worth the bother. Sure, and invest and in the future. Whether whether you're Tesla, General Motors, uh, uh, you know uh, SpaceX, IBM, whoever you are, Kaizen or Aqueous Tech, doesn't matter. You know we all we all have that that same fundamental dilemma. Uh, but it comes down to perceived perceptions of value. And, and again, our, our focus has always been 
if, if we're adding value in and around what, what we do above and beyond the product, we've got a better shot at that equation working out for our customers. And, and Mike's been a key part of that, you know, since the early days, because when, uh, when, when things do go bump in the night, you know, they reach out to people that they think have the answers and, and he's always been one of those fellows. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mike's kind of the face of the company and Tom too, but for different, different things, uh, Tom, right. you're the, you're the talking about the industry guy. And Mike is the talking about how the product works guy as, as I experienced it. Um, how much of your, of, of Kaizen's success would you attribute to Mike and Tom and Kyle and the team? And how much would you attribute it to luck? Give me a, a percentage. You know, I, I think it, it depends on your time horizon. Okay. If, there you go. If you were going to go back and pick a day back in 92 or three, when we were just getting going and we were trying mightily, I'd say, you know, the luck quotient was pretty high uh, on that day. All right. Uh, but fundamentally it's, it's, while it's better to be lucky than good on any day, what our team does, and it's way more than Mike and Kyle or myself or any of the other leaders or anybody, we've developed a culture and Kyle's that really the core of the culture, all right, that, that embodies all this stuff that we've talked about, taking care of the customers, you know, continuous improvement and innovation. And, and frankly, the biggest leadership challenge is, is making sure that everybody on the team, whether it's the, the, the he or she on the loading dock or, or salesperson or technical person, you know, over in the far east someplace, that they embody that too. And that they, they not only project it, not, not so much like a branding kind of thing, uh, but they, they embrace it. And, and when, when doing right by your customers, the watchword, you know, people don't have to ask their boss what to do because doing the right thing is usually pretty darn obvious. Um, and, and we've empowered our team to do the right thing. And sometimes they go, man, okay, you know, some, sometimes it's a tall drink of water and sometimes it's, it's easier. But that's, the, that's what's created our success is that empowering the, the, the again, the he or she, the, the guy or the gal out in working with the customer, say, you know, we can help and here's what we can do. And then when they call back to the front office, they get, well, that was a great idea rather than what are you thinking? Um, and doing that you know, now decade after decade, and, and Mike's famous for that. I mean, he, 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 in the early days, he'd come back and, and, and he'd go, well, here's kind of what happened and here's what I told them we'd do. And, and Mike, I, I don't know if you remember those days. I remember them well. Yeah, that, I was always noted for writing the blank checks. But, you know, um, <laughs> The checks always seem to get cash. They so, got, yeah, so they, somehow you had, you had a, enough funds, <laughs> uh, barely enough funds. Uh, two last questions as we're running a little late here. Um, one is, uh, Mike, uh, you, you, Kaizen, and uh, another company um, got together and started a new company called Magnolytics, um, which makes uh, cleanliness testing assessment equipment, uh, surface insulation resistance equipment specifically. How has your experience with Kaizen benefited your startup 
with Magnolytics? Did you do things different? I mean, besides the reputation that you have, you know, you, you, no one knew who Mike Bixman was or Kyle Doyle was or Tom Forsyth was in the early, earliest days of Kaizen. You, you were all new on the scene, just like I was when I started my company. But now, so besides the fact that people know Mike and, and they know Kaizen and they know the other company involved, besides that, how much of what you've learned from your experience with Kaizen has benefited the startup phase of Magnolytics? Oh, uh, Mike, I mean, it, it, it's funny. We talk about this every day. All right. When, when, in fact, just the other day we were getting ready for this, for this call and, and we sat around and talked for about an hour just to kind of refresh old memories and things like that. And, and Mike, you commented to me that you got, it really is kind of a deja vu sort of thing. Um, because it, why don't, why don't you share what you were thinking, Mike, how things seem to repeat. Oh, we lost Mike. Uh-oh, we lost Mr. Bix. Well, we will, then, then uh, I'll, I'll share what he said, or we can do this. Maybe he'll probably he'll come back, back in. in. I'll keep an eye out right. for him. I'm sure he'll so come we'll back in. Come. So. But it was it was really funny because, I, you know, I, re I remember those days vividly, right? Because I remember I missed the, the investment phase. I was in the bootstrap phase. And, and Magnolytics is, is kind of in that same place. It's new. It's it's a new idea. It's an old, partially old, partially new. Um, and... and perceptions and explaining things and, and helping people get it. It's, it's so similar um, that, that I, I, I find myself having a series of flashbacks that, you know, we're working on something for Magnolytics or Mike said, you know, ask me about something and I'll go, Oh, well, gosh, that reminds me of remember this, you know, and, and because, because I, I, and I said this in the very beginning, Mike, I, I do believe that, startups have a lot more in common with each other than they have different in those early days. You know, there's a shortage. There's always a shortage of resources. There's always a shortage of time. And there's a shortage of, of, of full understanding. You know, you've got a great idea, but it's usually is some sort of new space, you know, to, to some degree. And, um, and so you're every day you're learning reminds me like, you know, I, I was a military guy, right. And I went to business school and I have this funny story I tell about the accounting class I took there. I would sit in the class and I go, Damn. and the professor noticed this after a while. And he talked to me after class with it. says, well, I do that when I realize that you've just told me the truth for something that I believed I understood and I was completely wrong. Okay. <laughs> and it turned out that every single thing I thought about accounting was completely wrong. And this class was, was, you know, was kind of like some person that lived in the jungle finding a cell phone or something. Yeah, right. And, uh, and and it's it's, but that's what a startup's like. You know, you you at best know half of what you need to know, and and you're you're and, and you got to be constantly open to to be willing to learn, and embrace those new ideas because you know it wasn't that you were dumb yesterday. It's just that yeah, you, know, you, you guessed and you guessed wrong. Right. You didn't know. Right. And, and you, know, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta make decisions. You gotta move forward. You gotta guess, you know, it's, it's an educated guess. It's a, you know, it's an, inf it's a somewhat informed decision, but in the startup days, you know, plenty of them are wrong. Uh, and, and Magnolytics is, is experiencing that same phenomena, you know, because again, it's, it's a piece of test equipment. That's not what we do. You know, you're in the machine business. We were never really in that business. Um, you know, and, uh, and so it's, it's been enlightening to, to see Mike working on that and, and the, the limited areas that I'm involved. Uh, there he is. He's back. Mike's and, back. 
Hey, I don't know what happened. I apologize. No, no. Hey, it's the world of the internet. It's the world of virtual meetings. It's it, it works most of the time, not all the time. So, uh, and Tom covered for you. He he was carrying the torch. Uh, we're almost out of time. I do want to ask, uh, Tom, did you? Uh, did you yeah, no, that, that, that was kind of, okay. that was, it's, 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 it's sort of a deja vu experience, I guess, in, in short. Right, right. That, uh, we're, we're learning lots of things on a regular basis, some of which we thought we knew yesterday that turned out not to be, not to be true. <laughs> yes, yes. When I left my company, I, I left a company in our industry and started my company in this industry. And um, they, they were not happy with that. They accused me of you know, stealing their ideas and, you know, whatever, and their business practices. And they were right in that, um, that I did see them do things which resulted in pretty extreme failure. And I did learn what not to do. In fact, most of the takeaways I had from that experience was, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And it obviously it helped me. So I think failure is, you know, failure leads to success as much as success leads to success if you learn from it and, and recalibrate. My last question uh, is um, back in the early days when you guys were bootstrapping probably, uh, I remember seeing my first ad, the first ad that Kaizen put out. I don't know if it was the first, first one I saw. And it was something to the effect of, 50 reasons to buy Kaizen products. And the last reason was 2LG2Q, literally, the number 2LG2Q. And, of course, this was back in the probably late 80s or very early 90s, so we got to understand what music was playing back then. But uh, someone tell me what that meant and why that was on there. Mike, do you want to tell that story? Yeah, Yeah, it was... uh... It was driven by Kyle. It's too legit to quit. You know, we, uh, in those early days, you know, back when we were talking about, hey, our funding, uh, you know, dried up. And here we were, a group of guys that, um, you know, we we had to self-fund ourselves. You know, we weren't getting paid, you know. And uh, it was, I think, at the end of the year, and Kyle had that too legit to quit. And so it... Um, it stayed with us throughout the years. And, and as a matter of fact, it comes up, I think we had a, a birthday party, I, or I don't know, and it, it came up again, too legit to quit. You know that song? I don't know who played the song, but uh, but, but that's what I think that it was. Meant. Was it J.C. Hammer, Mike? One of the, MC one of the, Hammer or something. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. And, Our uh, audience will correct you know, us if we're wrong. A funny thing about that, Mike, when we put that ad in, it was the 100 Reasons, and it was... 100 Reasons. It was, it was this, it, I remember it to this day, it was this kind of dark blue background and kind of what I considered orange. I am not the color aficionado. Orange letters on it, which struck me as odd at the time. But, but we got loads of people actually asked us what that was. Uh, and at the time, we were kind of embarrassed by it. All right? Because... At the time, it was true. You know, we, we were too legit to quit, but we, we on, on more than a few days, had plenty of reasons if, if we decided to. And and we were kind of embarrassed to talk about it. So we didn't actually explain it in the early days of, of what it was. We waited until we kind of got over the hump. <laughs> yeah. Where, you know, the dark days were a fond memory. Yeah. Uh, 
but that's yeah so that actually we were shocked that people actually noticed that oh it turned out probably it was not meant for this purpose but it turned out to be a little marketing gimmick right because it it did plant something in there that no one knew what it meant and it created this curiosity factor you know that would have that that would have been the luck factor was the luck factor was high on that day yes on that day with that ad yeah absolutely well dr mike vixen and tom forsyth forsyth thank you so much for being my guest today on concept creation and uh, i don't need to say this good luck in the future i i I don't think i think you're past the luck stage uh, although we can all use it uh, but uh, certainly um, i enjoy seeing uh, the new direction that uh, kaizen's taken with magnolytics and uh, I, I look forward to uh, working with you guys for many years to come. Thanks for being my guest. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks for watching episode number four of the Concept to Creation podcast. And a special thanks go out to my guests today, Dr. Mike Bixenman and Tom Forsyth of Kaizen Corporation. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. And regardless of where you get your podcasts, be sure and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes are released. We do release new episodes on the first and third Tuesday of each month. Also, if you're listening to this in your car and you'd like to see the video version of this podcast, uh, visit our YouTube channel, the Concept to Creation YouTube channel, and be sure and subscribe to the show and hit the bell icon so you'll be notified when new episodes are released. My email address is right down here. If you have any questions or or, uh, episode suggestions, feel free to reach out to me and let me know. In the meantime, thanks so much for watching. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and I'll see you again very soon. I was meant to be free, meant to be free.